Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. Thanks for listening to this real conversation. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit Hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back. Now I get to get back and forth on some top-down macro. Uh, obviously, Carson Block took the pass on that. He said, look, I don't do macro, man. But uh, this guy does. Jim Bianco, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me, Keith. Yeah, he, uh, last time, you know, last year at the Investing Summit, it had to have been at this time last year, um, you were one of the few people that was like rip-roaring bullish. You're like, grip it and rip it. Uh, so I just and, and congrats on that because it took a lot of people a long time to to, to 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 really catch the wave, if you would. And some people really never went bullish. Um, now let's do market. Let's do the stock market first, and then we'll do inflation and rates and the Fed. But you know, I thought it was going to start with inflation and rates and the Fed. But since you know most people aren't quite as focused on where we are in, in the actual equity or credit market cycle, um, you know, I, I'm just wondering where you're if you have any differentiated view. Yeah, you know, around the uh, around Thanksgiving, between Thanksgiving and the end of the year, I kind of turned a lot more cautious and eventually really cautious. That's code word for bearish on the market, <laughs> you know, into the first quarter. And it is really because of what we're going to talk about next is that the Fed is now the enemy of the stock market. They're out to it. Bill Dudley is the former New York Fed president. He doesn't officially speak for them, but these ex-guys can kind of say the quiet part out loud. And he wrote an op-ed last week that if the, if the stock market doesn't go down, the Fed might have to lower it. I don't know how you could be any more clear <laughs> that you've got a big, important player who's no longer on your side. And that sort of matters in my book. And that's what, one of the big reasons why I've turned uh, cautious on the market. I mean, um, by any backtest measure, uh, which to me is quite important, if the Federal Reserve is tightening into a slowdown, that just never ends well for the stock market. So um, at a bare minimum, there's that. But the vigilance... And, and Keith, Keith, add to that, that they're not only tightening, but this stated policy, at least by Dudley, is to lower the yeah, stock market. That, that's that's you know? crazy. I mean, I had, and you speak, you and I have the same job. We, we speak back and forth with big institutional clients, and there's usually a pretty healthy bid-ask on that. Um, I had plenty of clients send me, you know, forward me that immediately saying, really? Like, because that is so unnatural for us, for guys our age, to have a Federal Reserve that even whispers that. That, that was like an unnatural thing. It was almost like it was a joke, but you obviously don't think it was a joke. No, it wasn't a joke, and you're right. You know, um, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Jim Grant, when uh, he, I was uh, talking with him, and, he, and his comment was, aha, see, I knew that their job was always to manipulate the stock market. They just said it out loud. And that, <laughs> seems to be, that seems to be what they're doing. you know. And that brings to the idea that, well, what about the rally that we've had since 2009? Now, not all of that is Fed policy, but some of that is. Mm -hmm. And now they're, they're going back the other way. And, of course, that begs the big question as to why. Why are they going back the other way? That's what we'll talk about here in a little bit, or maybe next, and that's inflation, yep. and that their goal is now inflation. Well, let's just get into that. I mean, uh, we've had, uh, I've had in the last, uh, you know, it's day three, uh, I've had different people that have different views on that. You know, like um, Daniel DiMartino Booth yesterday kept saying, no, look, this is a political situation these guys are in, and Powell is going to keep going till he breaks something. And I just kept pushing her on that, and she wouldn't back off. You know, that Texan lady is not going to back off on something like that. <laughs> She's just like, no, right. this is, so, so, so go for it. What, what do you think, why, why do you think that about inflation? Oh, first of all, I, I'm, I know Danielle and I know what she's thinking and I'm, I'm in agreement with her in respect that the Fed is now worried about the political aspects of inflation. And the way I like to explain it is the Fed does a triennial survey of consumer finances. The last one was 2019. The next one will be the summer. In the last one, 
40% of the American public has less than $1,000 of savings. We call that living paycheck to paycheck, and they rent. So when we have 8.5% inflation, they're getting killed. Mm -hmm. They're buying less stuff every month with their paycheck. They're not like you and me and everybody who's listening to an investing summit. Yeah, we own stocks, and the S&P was up 29% last year. We own a home. Case Shiller was up 18% last year. You know, so we see higher prices too, but we've got an offset to that. They don't. The Fed understands this. Congress, the president, understand this. This is why their approval ratings are in the tank, and all the polls say the number one issue in the country, far and away, is inflation. Distant second is maybe Russia, Ukraine, and then followed up with crime, immigration, social justice. Take your pick as to what they are. But it's about inflation. So the Fed knows this. The Fed sees this. And they feel like they have to do something. And what that means is the Fed's going to keep raising rates. And we say until they break something, they would say until prices come down, until inflation moderates. So they start raising rates. And you tell them, hey, look, the, the stock market's wobbly. Yeah, but inflation's still a problem. Keep hiking. They raise more. You might say, hey, but jobs are weakening. Yeah, that's because we have a lot of inflation. Keep hiking. Mm -hmm. That's their mentality right now. When inflation comes down, they'll stop. So, yes, there is a high risk that they'll break something uh, before they, they'll break something and then they'll, the, that will cause inflation to really come down because nothing ends inflation like killing demand, which is otherwise known as a recession. Yeah, I mean, killing demand is an interesting, uh, interesting one-liner for the Federal Reserve. <laughs> but if you go, uh, they're really good at that. Yeah, they're really good at that. By the way, history shows that the the main like you know if if they, I always like to model inflation like nothing's like if nothing changes, what is it going to look like? It's not going to come down nearly fast enough. Like, and and again, I don't think that I'm way outside of consensus with this view. But guys, show slide fifteen. I mean, we basically have inflation going from eight something to. You know, high seven something. That's going to be the next, you know, three to three to four to five months. Um, so it's not going to happen this quarter. Do you have a view on the level that the Fed is says says I disinflated enough? Yeah, yeah. First of all, I want to say I think you've got the argument exactly right. I hear a lot of people on Wall Street saying that's it. Yesterday's inflation number that was the peak of inflation. You might be right. That might eight and a half might be. The high watermark. We'll find yeah. out in the next 30 or 60 days. But that's not the issue. The issue is how fast does it recede? Right. And I agree with you. If we are at seven handles on inflation by the end of the summer, do you know what the Fed will have done in May, June, and July? They will have hiked 50, 50, and 50 yeah. is what they will have done. You know, I think you've got to get it down to maybe three and a half, maybe three before they'll start thinking that they've done their job. That could take a year to 18 months. In the meantime, they're going to keep hiking like crazy. And that's one of the interesting things that we're seeing in the pricing in the markets. When you look at short-term debt, Fed fund futures, um, repo, uh, you know, the like, what you're finding is the market is now thinking that the Fed is going to raise rates by 50 basis points at each of the next three meetings. And I've argued if they go 50-50-50 May, June, July, that's going to be the new rate hike, 50. And when they're done, they'll keep going 50 till the rate cycle hike, the rate hike cycle is done. They're not going to dial back to 25 again at, at that point. So that's so getting back to what you said, I think it it's we shouldn't be talking about when inflation is going to be peak. Yeah, I understand we do, and it will be fairly soon, but it's really going to be how fast does it come back down? And I think the answer is not very. Now, if it comes down fast, there's a, again, there's a way you make it come down fast. You <laughs> cause a recession. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, I've used the analogy. I've used the analogy about causing a recession to end, uh, end inflation. Like I go to the doctor and I say, doctor, I got this infection in my leg. And he pulls out a bone saw and he says, it works every time. I was like, well, that's kind of not the way I wanted you to fix the infection. But that's <laughs> the kind of the way the Fed does it when they, when they start tackling inflation, or we have to be very careful that that's the way they wind up uh, fixing the inflation problem. Well, that, that's that's why when I, you know, I look at guys, can you show um, as of this morning? I mean, this has really blown my mind. 
like in terms of like the pace of rate hike expectations, particularly in this one-year window, which would include, to your point, like the 50 and the 50. You're, you're the first person I've heard say 50-50-50, which is like, you know, when I hear 50-50, I feel like I'm in Thunder Bay, Ontario at the bingo hall. I want to win. You know, it's like this is, right. if we go 50-50-50, basically that's what, I, can you see this chart? I'm sure you're well aware of what yes. it is. But yes. I mean, but I mean, this thing has gone vertical and and it looks just like two-year yields, and therefore two-year yields are inverting the yield curve. And guys like you and I are like, like I, 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 hear, I hear people say the yield curve doesn't matter. Um, like I hear a lot of bullshit. But I mean, can you talk through one? I think what you're saying is you believe that rate hike path, or at least you believe that the Fed believes they should be on that rate hike path, and that they'll deliver it until they don't. Um, you know, two. Do you so? Correct me if I'm wrong on that. And two. Do you think that you know the embedded inversion on that guys show one year ahead tens twos four? We've never seen a chart collapse like this in looking at tens twos ever. You know what could possibly go wrong? Right. Well, a couple of things. Let me start with the yield curve. Yeah. Uh, the yield curve, as we know, going back to 1960s, has a 100% track record uh, for when it inverts. And let me be clear on an inversion, a persistent inversion. Now right. I've defined persistent inversion of 10 consecutive days. We only did two, and then it uninverted. Um, so we haven't quite got there yet, but we're, we're really close. So if you get a persistent inversion, it's eight for eight in predicting recessions. The other thing that you have a 100% track record for is every time it inverts, you get all the PhDs come out to say that it won't work this time. And it seems to always, it always does work. Now, I will give you the caveat with the yield curve that uh, we've never seen this much quantitative easing, right. money printing. Now they're going to do quantitative tightening. The Fed owns over a third of the Treasury market uh, with their $9 trillion balance sheet. Yeah, that is different. That might impact the the signaling of the yield curve and i use the word might i'm not sure it does but i'm open to the idea because we've never seen this before we don't know but if you go with the standard yield curve analysis it does say that that there is uh that there is a risk in the market that i would rather get paid a higher interest rate for shorter debt than longer debt i want a premium for shorter debt because i see a higher risk in the marketplace. The other thing about the, all the rate hikes that are in the market, we've been playing this parlor game on Wall Street for months now. You know, how many rate hikes is the Fed going to do? Uh, I got six, I got eight, I got 10. You know, people are just all over the lot. But what's interesting is the consensus is way behind what the market prices. So currently, the market is pricing 13 rate hikes. Through the end, through the summer of 2023, and that would get you to three to three and a quarter on the funds rate by the summer of 23. Uh, a rate hike is is 25 basis points for people that are, are not familiar with that. Um, Bank of America released a survey yesterday, yesterday, where they surveyed 300 global fund managers. They have the number of rate hikes for the entire cycle at seven. The market's got 13 priced in. Yeah. They have always been, the, the, the fund managers have always been behind the curve. The economists that follow them have always been behind the curve. That's why we perpetually have to keep upping the ante as to how much they're going to raise rates. And I think the reason is, going back to that Bank of America survey one more time, they asked the question, do you think inflation is permanent or transitory? 49% said permanent, 43% said transitory. Wow. That to me is a really high number for transitory. See, they don't think transitory, let me let me give you a definition of transitory. The Fed has to do nothing. Just sit there and wait, and inflation will go away by itself. Uh, and 43% of fund managers think that. That's why they think the Fed's only gonna raise seven times. Mm -hmm. That they're just gonna go through the motions of raising rates a couple of times here in the spring, maybe in the early summer. Then we'll see that inflation was on the process of going away all by itself, and then they can stop. But the yield curve, the market pricing is saying, no guys, they got the, the way you're going to get rid of inflation is somebody's going to have to make it go away. Yeah. And that would be the Fed leaning on the economy, trying to slow the economy. And getting back to Dudley, what is the biggest tool that the Fed thinks they have to slow the economy? A reverse wealth effect. 
make us all a little poorer. And then we will not a lot poorer, a little poorer, and then we'll start we'll spend a little bit less or think twice about spending. The big problem is how do you make somebody a little bit poorer and not have it run away and make you a lot poorer? <laughs> it's you know, it's a blunt it's a very blunt instrument. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah, here, here's a little here's a little nail and I got a twenty pound sledgehammer and I pound the nail into into the wood. Well, how do I know I'm not going to break everything with the sledgehammer and just get the nail in? That's the problem that the Fed faces. Yeah, we want to slow things down a little bit to bring down inflation. Okay, fine. But how do you know that you've done enough and usually the Fed does way too much yeah. and that's why they break something? Well, that um, – and this is why I love having these conversations because I – obviously, I have my own models. We have our own process. I have my own views. And – Suffice to say, this one has been, um, you know, confounding me in terms of how this actually is going to, as a functional matter, play out. Uh, with, like you said, sledgehammer, little nail. Last night, me and Jack, I, I tore my triceps off my off my elbow, so I couldn't. I was trying to cut cut his hockey stick, you know, so that he could maybe like you're looking for Chicago Blackhawks prospects, right? So, <laughs> like, you're going yeah. to try. We got to cut this stick, and I realized I can't use my right hand with like a. Yeah, you know, like with a with a with a skill saw, and a fourteen year old's never used that before. And I'm like, I don't know if I should do this, like with you know, like how I would just zing it off, you know, the deck with my with my with one hand. And um, you know, it was kind of that moment where I was like, shit, I, if I plug in this, if I plug in this skill saw, and this goes the wrong way, then you know, this guy's gonna never play hockey for the rest of his life. I mean, so we I dialed that back, right? But just to use like your analogy, like when I think of on seven hikes. And you're 50-50-50, that would actually be seven hikes, right? Because we already did we already did 25. Right. Um, by July. That would be seven hikes by July. Right. So that would be. Like, I, in my own mind, and this definitely is my bias, uh, we all have them. I think it's just a, I think it's important to be aware of them. <laughs> like, in my mind, three 50 basis point hikes, I, like, I just don't think that the stock market is going to be able to handle that in a way where you're not down, like, the, where the S&P is down what the NASDAQ was on the lows this year, like down 22, 25%. And I guess that's my bias. I mean, that Carlisle's not going to call, my former employer's not going to call Powell, who's his, also their former employer, and get, you know, credit market in that scenario is way worse. You know, junk's already not trading in Europe. Like, how does it, so what do you think about that? Seven hikes would actually be an interesting number for a lot of money managers who's, who believe in the Fed put. So if your former boss, David Rubenstein, calls Jay Powell and says, you're killing me with these seven hikes, Jay Powell's answer is going to be, yeah, that's kind of the point. Yeah. Uh, you know, because <laughs> really? I, I got to help the 40% that have no savings by lowering prices at, at the grocery store and at the gas pump and at the mall. Uh, so that's just so you know that that's where the, 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 the Fed's the Fed's thinking is uh, on all of this, but it is going to be, you know, very difficult for them to try and pull this off, this high wire act. I, you know, how are they going to wind up uh, doing this without having any kind of collateral damage is going to be a problem. But remember on the other side of the equation, just to stick on it, if the Fed were to knuckle under, and believe me, when I talk to fund managers like you do, this is the big question. Well, yeah, the market's got 13 rate hikes priced in. Oh, they'll never do that. Why? Because the market, the stock market will be on its knees if you tried to raise rates to, yeah. you know, to 3% by the end of next year. So therefore, the minute that the market gets wobbly, the Fed will cave. And if they need to, they'll start easing. Yeah. And, I'm, and my comment to them is from 2008 to 2021, that was exactly the way the Fed worked. Right. But from 2008 to 2021, you never had inflation over 2%. Yeah, you're right. But now that it's at 8.5, that's the difference that it's at 8.5, that they have to deal with that problem. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's partially people, then they'll say, well, is the, so you're saying to me the Fed is making a mistake. And I say to them, no, the Fed made the mistake last year. Mm. They should have started dealing with this problem a year ago. Yeah. You know, before they, before you get to the, to the to the harsh medicine so th they don't really have a choice because the other side of the equation is let me turn it around david rubenstein calls jay paul and jay's and rubenstein says you're killing me jay and jay says i'm sorry david we'll stop the 40 percent will riot if that's really what you wind up telling them is look i want to deal with this inflation problem 
But, you know, these guys with all these uh, portfolios, they're, they're having a tough year here after being up 29%. We can't <laughs> let the stock market go down. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be funny and trying to get my point across. No, but they're, that's what I'm trying to say is that their priority has changed, they being the Fed. And I think a lot of people are having a hard time coming to grips with the idea they have a different priority now. Mm-hmm. And it's because we have 8% inflation. All right, if I'm wrong and inflation is transitory and it goes back down to two, we could drag out the 2008 to 2021 playbook again. But until it gets back down, their priority, their playbook looks a lot more like Volcker's playbook than it looked like Bernanke and Yellen's playbook. Yeah. What's a really interesting point, amongst the many interesting points that you've made, uh, um, is that they're complicit by virtue of not acting. Like it's, it's To me, it's equally ridiculous today to say that you don't expect the yield curve inversion to be signaling an economic slowdown as it was saying that inflation was transitory a year ago. I mean, it's the same stupid forecast. It doesn't matter, but you're going to actually act on it. Now, acting on it with the with the conditional factoring that is what the Fed's already you know, provided the market in terms of liquidity, I want to get your view on that on slide 51 because we're kind of this this um, on slide 51. I'm just showing you the 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 the, the view from the shadow rates perspective. Um, one, do you believe in that kind of analysis, the rate of change fully loaded of, you know, incremental easing and undoing the easing equals incremental rate hikes, you know, because the argument would say that we've had already had nine rate hikes and we're going to have 19 rate hikes um, or not? No, I do believe in a, in a version of that, in that the quantitative tightening that's coming and the Fed has already laid it out for us a couple of weeks ago that after the May 4th meeting, they're going to be reducing the balance sheet by $95 billion a month. Uh, that some amount of that, and it seems like the number that everybody's throwing out on Wall Street is $300 billion. That every $300 billion that the balance sheet is reduced is the equivalent of another rate hike. Mm-hmm. So if they're going to reduce the balance sheet by about a trillion dollars a year, you could throw in another three-plus rate hikes on top of the actual rate hikes that they wind up doing uh, as well too. So um, that is what um, I do agree that 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 shadow rate matters. Now that said, we've never like just like I said with quantitative easing. Again, we've never done quantitative tightening. Right. We've only got a bunch of people making best estimates on what they think the amount of balance sheet reduction is equivalent in rate hikes, but we really don't know. You know, we could be way off on these numbers. It could be a trillion dollars is one rate hike. It could be a hundred billion. Right. Is what you know. We will only know when it starts next month, and we see how the economy and markets react to it. Well, that's a that's a, an equally important point. Is that the assumption from somebody? I think you and I are in the same camp on this. Is that I don't believe in the in the in the primary assumption that a central planner can part the seas and and the heavens. I mean, I just don't believe that that happens in a linear fashion. So with every reaction, there could be an exponential function or you know jump conditions. That's just how you'd look at anything in fractal nature. You would not assume that doing A will on a linear basis equate to B. But that's how they are. That's actually how they have to justify it, is it not? Yes, and 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 to underscore that point. Um, Yes, I, I definitely think that the biggest problem with trying to plan an economy, which is why I'm like you, I'm a, 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 a fan of markets making decisions, because when a, when a, in a group of people like the FOMC or board of directors makes a decision, they have an emotional investment in that decision. Right. And when it starts to go awry, like their inflation forecasted last year, they can't just say, oh, well, we screwed up. Let's just change the forecast. And no, they have to drag out the word transitory and they have to keep justifying it until it becomes so obviously wrong that they're way too late. The thing about a market is markets make mistakes all the time, but they never explain. They never complain. They just change. You know, <laughs> well, well, the market was going market was going up last week. Well, now it's going down this week. It changed its mind. You know, and it and it, and it, it got new information or believes it got new information, and now it's going the other way. And, but when you have a group of people, they they drag out the word transitory. And so, yeah, that's where I think markets are. So at any one, to give fairness to a group of people like an FOMC, at any one moment, 
they could probably guess as well as a market, this is what the policy should be. But when it comes time to change, they can't change because they've got an emotional investment in it. That's why I prefer markets because markets will, the, the, they'll, they'll kind of random walk their way towards getting it more right in the long term than groups of people. And that's why we have double auction markets to try and do that. And that's yeah. why when the Fed does quantitative easing, and I, uh, as I said earlier, I get really worried because I say, look, markets give us important signals. When you start putting your thumb on the scale and then you start screwing around with markets, you start screwing up all these signals. And then we don't know what's going on. And we could be walking right into a buzzsaw and we won't know it because the markets aren't giving us the appropriate warnings they used to give us before that. Yeah, that I mean, uh, use buzzsaw. I mean, it brings back again. I'm 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 a little too dense than to remember just last night. But again, there's a reason why a skill saw has a safety on it. There's a reason why a chainsaw has you know a safety on it. There's a rip cords. There 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 are. It, and, and I guess that's, and I want to t- bring this to the high yield market, junk market, the, the bubble that you've written extensively about over the years. You know, the Fed created this bubble, right? But they also put safeties on it. So this picture here, which is showing um, what I call the angst line on slide 45, and I'm just showing corporate spreads, right? So that dotted line, Jim, is particularly in 2018 when that was deemed to be a policy mistake by the credit market, you know, and the, actually, interestingly, the 10-year yield was right where it is right now. But that notwithstanding, that line is generally considered by the credit market to be the safety. So again, they did create these expectations. We don't have more more credit, you know, than ever in human history for some random reason that doesn't include the Fed. Um, so, what, right. like, like, okay, so just play this for J.P. Morgan. Today is a good example. Uh, earnings are down 42% year over year. 42, and that's by you know adjusting the number they said well our, our russian business is a one-off that's like don't account don't count that but if we get to a corporate profit recession that number is going to rip right through the safety and i think what you're saying is jay gets the call from rubenstein and no bueno right no i i agree that that is that is really what happens the markets, the markets are great signaling devices, and what you had there is is a good signal. The problem, again, the, the problem we're going to have with credit is it goes back to 2020, when in 2020, when everything was being shut down, and the credit market is you, you know, your chart showed that big gigantic yeah. vertical rise in spreads. What did the Fed do? They started buying high yield ETFs. They started buying corporate <laughs> bonds directly. <laughs> What was it that everybody on Wall Street said? The phrase from 2020 was, oh, I want to co-invest with the Fed. I want to buy what the Fed's buying. If the Fed's buying corporate bonds, I want to buy corporate bonds because all I know is they're not going to let them default. They're not going to let them fall in price. Mm-hmm. It's good enough for me. So you wind up with an over-levered economy right. is what you wind up because you took all the risk out of a risky investment. And that's why we've got so much debt, and and that's why we've got so much worry. And that's one of the reasons I've argued, again, remember all these fund managers that keep telling me, well, no, you wait till the markets start wobbling, the Fed will turn around, and they'll they'll, they'll save the markets like they always do. And they'll they'll abandon this inflation worry. That's doubly for the corporate guys, because the corporate guys are saying, they saved me in 2020. They're going (laughs) to save me again. Because that's what the Fed does. Look, they're historically, they're 100% accurate. That's the way the Fed has worked. But, you know, the big question is, and I'm trying to be, you know, fair about it, the big question is, how much does inflation really matter? And their argument is it matters to a point, but when the markets get messy enough, they will then start easing and save us. And I'm saying, yeah, but that point is like the Fed point. I think it's way, it's going to be a lot more pain that point before they step in than you think. You know, a lot of these guys think it's it's virtually no pain and the Fed will step in because, again, that's exactly the way they've worked for the last 14 years. And so I understand why people think that way. But I happen to think that this inflation thing for the Fed is a bigger deal than the 43% that think inflation is transitory. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, it's, it's an institutional bias. Again, you talk about biases and noise and, and they're two different things. I mean, 
where everyone has a recency bias now. They're like, like you said, everyone's like the eight and a half number. That's got to be the peak. You know, we need it to be the peak is more of the premise to that. But you know, then then you have all the noise. Like this is what the Fed's going to do. Da 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 da. But um, that's largely based on an institutional bias that we've had, which is the Fed put for a long time. Um, when when I when I get to a conversation, let's say. You and I are in the minority, certainly if we if we took the two of us and and, and doubled down on, on our positioning on this in terms of the equity market where it ends up or credit for that matter. Um, if I do have an institutional client that agrees, then I take them like because you don't really you know how it is like when you don't when you have a long only client and you don't really want to go like to the darkest of dark bear market like outlooks. <laughs> you know, like I always yes. You know what I mean? Like you have to be a little careful with them. Um, because you know, because that's just not the business they're in. Um, but I often pull back the long-term chart because what you said on corporate profits is critical. We've not allowed failure. We've not allowed the corporate profits actually to go down, which is interesting. So if you look at um, slide 56, guys in the deck, it's it's the long-term relationship between labor and capital. Um, so corporate, what we're showing here is uh, U.S. corporate profits against labor. You know, for the last basically since the Great Financial Crisis, that black line, corporate profits. You know, episodically it went down, like you said, but then it went straight back up because we bailed out the high yield and jump bond market. But historically, you know, Jim, you know, if you go back every other time, there's six other times on that chart where the blue line, the people get paid, you know, they keep getting paid, and the and and corporate profits collapse to this, the exact same spot. You know, we we've not allowed that once. And if if there ever was a time for the blue line politically. For the people to get paid, I think this is one of the most important things. You're, 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 you're very, uh, or you're not to sound Trumpian, hugely and massively convicted in, you know, is that the people need to get paid. The blue line is 100% going to go up, which causes the black line to go down. By the way, right? <laughs> why, why can't, right. why can't, like, will those moments? I just think of those as gravity. Those six dots, right? You have six red dots on the black on, on the bottom. Like, is there any case to make that that's not how this ends? There is something interesting going on in the labor market, and I've been a big proponent of it because I think it drives all macro on the way down. Work from home. Okay. And work from home is a huge deal. A couple of statistics for you. And for those listening, I'm relying on uh, Nick Bloom of Stanford University. He's been doing... Boy, talk about a guy who picked a good subject. About 2017, he started researching the whole work-from-home phenomenon a couple of years before <laughs> the pandemic. So, you know, it, better to be lucky than smart, right? Uh, WFH, workfromhomeresearch.com is his website. Okay. So here's what he says. Something like 45-ish percent of American jobs can be done hybrid or remote. The other 55%, you know, a doctor has to go to a hospital, a policeman has to walk his beat. They, they have to go to work. That's just the nature of the job. Um, of the 45%, now I'm going to talk about the 45% that are work from home. We were moving towards a remote work hybrid uh, system at about half a percent a year. And we were at about 4% in early 2020, moving at half a percent. By the second quarter of 2020, because of the lockdown, we went from 4% to 60%. Or as he said, we jumped ahead 50 years huh. in one fell swoop. So if you're a fan of sci-fi time travel movies, that's exactly what we did. Uh, and what now, we've got about 38% of the workforce that can work from home or hybrid in that position right now. That changes everything. Because we have 160 million people in this country that have a job. And the whole economy is structured around an assumption that 160 million of us go to work eight hours a day, five days a week, mm -hmm. roughly speaking, some more, some less. The services we require, the goods we purchase are all structured on that idea. Now, you take 38% of people that can work from home and they are, their consumption basket's different. Mm. They, they don't need as many services and they want more stuff. We have durable goods prices booming because we have a supply chain crisis because we want stuff. All the stuff's made in China and we can't get it over here fast enough. And so the big debate on Wall Street is you keep hearing about the return to normal. And what that's code word for is a return to pre-pandemic, or as I like to say, return to 2019. And I've been arguing 
and I get my my influence off of Bloom, we're not going back to 2019. Mm-hmm. Now, I did not say we're going to go somewhere dystopian. I think maybe 2019 for some people was dystopian. If you've ever taken New Jersey Transit through the Port Authority, <laughs> talk about dystopia. You know, and that that's what people don't want to do anymore. So they want to, and their argument is a very reasonable argument. Yeah. You sent me home for two years. Your chart just showed profits did okay with me at home. Why is there this zeal to get me back in the office? <laughs> I kind of like it here. Um, and by the way, if you look at all the statistics on the economy, NBA games are 98% attended from when they were pre-pandemic. The airport is 90% back pre-pandemic. Uh, 85 90% on um, restaurants pre-pandemic. 80% on movie theaters pre-pandemic. 40% on on offices. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so... I think that that's the big game changer that's causing the friction in the economy. What we need to do is have a discussion about, okay, what's the new economy? How does it work? What do people want? What do people don't want? Not only are we not having that discussion to talk about dystopian, yesterday in the New York Times, there was a big story about work from home, remote work is imperiling the finances of New York City because they rely so much on the revenues and the taxes of all the big office towers in midtown Manhattan, and they're all empty. And the subways, it's 60% of what it used to be. And the MTA, the Metropolitan Transit Authority, is losing ridiculous sums of money because they don't have the ridership that they used to have. And Mayor Eric Adams in New York City was quoted in the paper as saying, it's time you get out of your pajamas and go back to the office. <laughs> and I'm thinking... If there's a way to get people to not go back to the office, that's it. Just insult them like that, right? Yeah, and then in the dystopian thing, unfortunately, yesterday I'm reading the story, and at the top of the story is breaking news. A bunch of people were shot in a subway station in, in Brooklyn, and I'm like, man, we're never going to get people back in the office if we keep having these unfortunate and tragic uh, situations like this. That's so. Terrible. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a real problem or a real thing for the economy. And that's why I think this inflation thing is going to be a lot stickier than people think because the economy's out of balance. And because the economy's out of balance, um, we need to get it back into balance. We can, but we need to start having the conversation. And it starts with, we ain't going back to 2019. Okay, we're not going to go there. We're going to go somewhere else. That somewhere else is not necessarily bad. But what is that somewhere else? And instead, we've got the mayor of New York saying, get out of your pajamas and go back to 2019. <laughs> and so that's why it's been such a problem. And one last thing I'll throw out at you about this. If you want to see a living example of how the economy is changing, look at what's happening in the real in the home real estate, uh, residential real estate market, housing. Yeah. Redfin does a bunch of interesting statistics, and I'll throw out two of them at you. The number of homes in the United States that are now trading above the list price is over 50%. So over half the homes that are sold now go for more than the offer price, right? Um, What does that tell me? Well, the reason you hire a real estate broker and you give them 5% to sell your house is the first question you ask them is, what's my house worth? And obviously these real estate brokers are struggling to find the right price because pre-pandemic it was about 15% of houses that sold above sticker and now it's over half. Pre-pandemic, the average sale price or the average selling time, excuse me, the average selling time used to be measured in months, three or four months. Now they're measuring it in days. It's 13 days. It's 13 days. So if you don't sell your house in two weeks, there's something wrong. Now, why is that? I think it's because 38% of the world has been unencumbered. Wow. Why do I live in New Jersey? Because I work in Manhattan. Well, now that I remote... I can live anywhere in the country. And so they're moving anywhere in the country. And therefore, they're, and now they've got a different, they've got a different, uh, and they're willing to pay whatever they need to pay. Now, it also works in reverse. There are people that live in Pennsylvania that said, boy, I really like the urban lifestyle, but now that I'm remote, I can move to Greenwich Village. So there is some of that going the other way yep. as well, too. So I think that, you know, when people ask me if, if housing is broke, a bubble, I say, no, it's it's just, it's different. It's so different because of this work from home thing. Everything flows from that. Uh, inflation flows from that. Growth flows from that. Residential housing flows from that. 
The Fed is trying to fix it with their 20-pound hammer, and they're not even sure that this is a problem, this work-from-home thing in the first place. So that's why I'm saying that the economy is very offsides and out of balance, and it's very susceptible to an error in policy at some point. And that's why, in the last statistic I'll give you, that's why I think we have inflation, and we also had something else happen in the first quarter. I do this asset allocation thing where I look at domestic stocks like the S&P and the Russell and international stocks, the MSCI World Index and IFA, which is Europe, Asia, Far East. And I look at international bonds like the Global Aggregate Index and some others, including emerging markets. And I look at domestic bonds like the U.S. Domestic Aggregate Index, credit indexes as, as well. For the first time in 28 years, the first quarter, everything lost money. The best performing asset class was actually the S&P 500. It was only down 4.6% for the first quarter. So when people ask me, and I, I've used this as an analogy, uh, when people always say to me, what do I do with my money? As a macro researcher, I always, I've always, i said, <laughs> what you're asking me is which asset class is going to go up this year? Because for the last 27 years, there's always been at least one asset class that's gone up, and sometimes all of them uh, have, have gone up. But the answer I'm going to give you now is none of them are going up because the economy is out of balance. We've got inflation. We've got an aggressive Fed. Everything is going down. I mean, technically, I'd left cash off the list because cash is always positive. Um, But it's a very small positive. But looking at something that has a little bit more risk than cash, they're all going down. And that's because I think work from home has got the economy out of balance. We've got inflation. And we've, we've got the Fed trying to deal with a pre-pandemic problem by trying to hike rates aggressively. And also they were too slow in recognizing the inflation because work from home meant I want more stuff and less services. And that they still didn't get that. And I still don't think they get that at this point. And so lots of things are really out of kilter. Yeah, the pandemic was a big deal. It was a big deal because it changed a lot of attitudes. Mm-hmm. Well, the the only I mean, gold's obviously worked, and that's you know, gold and commodities are. Think I think of gold as more like a currency. But uh, the first question the raw, I'm gonna, the raw materials, the raw materials for stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, that's what what the raw materials are for for stuff. And the other thing too is that if we are a, an economy that oh wow, I don't have to live in New Jersey because I, I can live anywhere now because of remote work. I can move anywhere I want. Well, now you're going to have to live somewhere where you need a car. And that's why we've got car prices going ballistic as people are paying up. You know, the Edmonds had an unbelievable statistic for the month of February that 83% of all cars that were new cars, new cars that were sold in, in February went above the sticker price. Whatever happened to all these people that you and I used to know that used to tell you how you negotiate with a car sale? They're all going. They're all going above sticker now. There's no, no haggling. There's absolutely no haggling. I, I'm building right. a house somewhere that I don't want to uh, talk about, but I mean, it, there was no haggling. I wasn't haggling. I was thankful to get it. You know, it's like it's like. Right. Oh, but, um, but but thank you for that for for all those different data points because. What I showed was a long-term relationship between you know, labor and profits, and what you answered with were regime shifts. And regime shifts are what create nonlinearities. And that's like for because you you know if you're just like a linear time series person, you just think there's it's always going to revert to the mean. But again, that assumption is equally as ridiculous as the Fed trying to tell you what amount of QT is going to create X amount of drawdown in S&P. It's ridiculous. It's just the whole thing is kind of ridiculous when you think about you know, the world dynamically the way that you did. So thanks for doing that. I, I only have like five minutes to ask you some questions that are voted up in the queue. Uh, one's, okay. one's an interesting one, which you just alluded to, which is the underperformance in particular of, of long-term treasuries, um, which it's atypical, you know, for that to happen. But Edward um, from, from Paris, France, obviously, uh, do you agree with, uh, Jim, do you agree with Rosenberg that it's time to start buying longer-dated treasuries? Do you think the 10-year hitting 3, 3.3% in the next several weeks is possible? It's two different questions. Uh, right? Yes, the second half, yeah, um, yes, I, I, I come around to being a little bit more bearish on bonds. I was bearish on bonds. I was kind of tacking towards neutral in the last several weeks, and now I'm kind of getting a little bit more bearish on bonds. If they go above 310, 3.1%, the 10-year note, yep, and it's at you know about 275 right now, that'll 
be the first time in 40 years you have had a higher high on the chart. You yep. know, so you, you've done a list of uh, the yield has gone lower lows, lower highs, lower lows, lower highs. You do a higher high. That is technical analysis 101 that the trend is now changed. The secular trend is now changed to up. So if you go three, three, and I think yeah. that that's now becoming possible, you change the secular trend to up. Do I want to buy bonds? No, because I think what's really to me, the bond market is acting like there's a forced liquidation in it. I'm talking about treasuries right now because yeah. they're just relentlessly selling off all the time. And the reason I think that they're acting that way is who is the biggest buyer of bonds? It was the Fed printing money. Yep. They own over a third of the bond market. They stopped buying bonds. And two weeks ago, they announced their plan to start reducing their balance sheet. And guess what's happened to the interest rate market since they announced that? It's gone straight up. Is, is what it's done. So who's going to be this gigantic buyer of bonds that's going to ignite this rally? I know who it's going to be. It's going to be the public panicking into the safe instrument when they think a recession is imminent. Mm -hmm. But right now, they're not there yet to think a recession is imminent. So I think yields will keep going higher. Yeah, it's a good, a good point. I mean, you go back to the prior policy mistake. Uh, not surprisingly, that's the number, right? I mean, the even Gunlock back then was like, ah, we're going to four. No, no. Uh, we stopped going up inside of three and a quarter. So at 310, that jump condition number, that would be an interesting breakout if that were to happen. Here's another interesting question from uh, Kevin Stadler. Um, why does the Fed actually have to reduce its balance sheet? Who are the buyers and why would they let a portion of the Fed balance sheet? Why wouldn't they just let a portion of the balance sheet just run off? Well, that's exactly what they're going to do, is they're going to let the balance sheet run off. They're not going to actually sell anything. Technically, they might have to sell a little bit of mortgages. But for the most part, they are you know they have a $9 trillion balance sheet. Uh, on average, it's lumpy. They have about $100 billion of securities every month that mature. Right. They're just not – what they do now is they buy another $100 billion for every $100 billion that matures to keep the level of the balance sheet steady. They're just going to stop buying, and they're going to let it run off. But remember now, that means then the Treasury is still going to issue $100 billion of securities in May, and the Fed was good for buying it with the runoff securities that they held. Well, I, I got to find another $100 billion buyer every single month because of the, of the runoff. So the reason, so that's the mechanics of, of what QT is, is at least going to be. Are they going to actively sell securities? They could in the future, but they're not going to do that right away. Why are they letting their balance sheet run off? Because they think it's contributing to inflation. Right. And their goal is to get prices down. Um, they're not wrong on that idea that it's contributing to inflation, but it's also maybe contributing to higher risk markets, too. Yeah. And like I said, uh, there's a great way to really kill inflation. Just <laughs> kill the economy. And inflation will go away right away. Uh, uh, but that's my bone saw argument, right? I, I, I'd like to fix the inflation without cutting my leg off. But unfortunately, that seems to be the only prescription the Fed has at times. Yeah. Well, on that, I mean, this last question, and you wouldn't get out of this uh, conversation without me asking something about this, but this question from Tom McNair, which uh, ultimately it's like, how about, you know, the, the price of crypto, like in that regard? Do you think that this is like, is, do you think that the beginning, we're down 40% on Bitcoin since the Russell, it was interesting, the Russell peaked on the same day, the Bitcoin, November the 8th, uh, when, at least by my math, the, that part of the economic cycle rate of change growth peaked in November. Yeah, so the I'm going to answer the question two ways quickly. Way one, I'm going to answer the question is the big problem with crypto is, be, you know, under the guise of be careful what you wish for. You had in 21 a big, huge institutional adoption. Now, that's a fancy word. What does that mean? That means a bunch of institutions opened up a Coinbase account and they bought some crypto. Uh, is what it, they And they bought some Bitcoin, to be more specific. Yeah. And then they said, okay. We just bought some Bitcoin. What are we going to do with it? Oh, get the tech analyst in here. You're in charge now of our crypto portfolio. Well, what am I supposed to do with it? So what is crypto trade like? It trades like a levered version of the ARK funds is what it basically goes up and down with them together. Should it trade that way? No. I think, you know, in other words, if there's a risk curve, right, it starts with treasury bills, goes to treasury bonds, corporates, high yields, stocks, you know, low rated stocks, and then crypto. Crypto should not be at the end of that risk curve. It should be its own independent risk curve that probably has no correlation 
to traditional markets. But if you're going to have billions and billions of dollars of this stuff bought by institutions and they tell the tech guy, you're in charge of it now, and all he sees is a levered version of the ARK Innovation Fund, which, by the way, Bitcoin has about an 85% correlation to um, right now, that's the way it's going to trade. And like I said, I don't think it should trade that way. I think ultimately in somewhere in the future, it will uh, stop trading that way. But that's the way it trades today. So if the stock market's going to struggle because the Fed is hostile towards the market, so will crypto, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it, it simple, simplifies the complex as, as only uh, a few of you out there in this uh, in this universe that is macro can tie it all together. You did a great job with all that, man. Um, I'm getting a bunch of people pinging me. Wow, Bianco's like got passion. He's like, yeah, he's got passion for this game, and it's it's not like your first rodeo. Uh, and you could rattle off pretty much any data-driven statistic that anybody would want to know off the top of your head. It's really impressive, and it was a, it was nice having you on. I appreciate it. Thank you. My Blackhawks need a defenseman. Hopefully, you got one over there. <laughs> well, I'm keeping everyone safe with the skill side. Okay, so I'm gonna. I'm gonna okay, keep, good. I'm gonna keep raising. Uh, try to keep grooming and raising hockey players. Of course, he is Jim Bianco. Thank you for listening to us on that front. Up next, and it's the finale. It's me and Dr. Pippa. Thanks for listening to Real Conversations, brought to you by Hedgeye. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the contents. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.